What's going on, everybody? For Cryptocurrent, I'm Stephen Miller, and you are watching The Aftershock, our weekly show where we connect you to what's going on in the world of Web3. As always on this show, I'm joined by Richard Carthon. Richard, how are you doing today? What's up, everybody? Uh, I'm doing good uh, in, in personal life. I got some, some, some things going on. Uh, closed on a house Monday and uh, moving into that thing. So really excited about that. But Going into the world of crypto, you know, it, it, it's been a, a tougher week compared to like last week and how we were excited about all the positive things. And, you know, uh, you, you speak too quickly and, and things kind of go right back in the other direction. And that's pretty much what happened. So uh, we'll get into like why all that stuff kind of happened. But just as a precursor of why I think a lot of that movement downward happened was you saw a lot of options uh, get executed on last Friday. And when that happened, you saw a stiff drop off uh, in, in the regular market. So I think this is a short term thing. I think we see it eventually you know, get its footing and start going another direction. But in that regard, that wasn't as as, as fun. But uh, in the personal life, at least that that was a, you know, a step in, in, in a positive light. But how about you, Steve? How are you doing? You know, man, I'm doing pretty good. I think that looking for the optimistic, um, you know, perspective is always what people should do. But it's really hard when the entire market just completely pulls back. Yeah. Um, you and I both had hope, dude. I, and I still do. Um, but I, I think that across the NFT market, there's still more pain coming. I think there's going to be a, another temporary down move for the rest of crypto, to your point. Um, but there's a lot of things to, at the same time, be excited for and a lot of opportunity out there. Again, you don't buy the top and sell and sell the bottom. That's not how this game works. But Again, for those of you that are not necessarily familiar with our show, we would like to invite you to make sure that you are subscribed over on YouTube and following wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We put these shows out Mondays and Wednesdays. You can check out Richard's interview series every single Monday and my, of course, Aftershock show that you're watching right now or tuned into right now every Wednesday. So ahead on this show, we're going to take you into a deep dive into what's going on in all of Web3. We're going to take you through last week in the metaverse. And then today, we're also going to introduce you to a new segment that we've got all about an alpha call. So every single week now, we're going to bring in that alpha call to make sure that you've got yourself ahead of the curve out in the market and doing better research for yourself. But let's go ahead and dive right in. This, of course, is the Aftershock. The Aftershock. So to start off our Web3 lightning round today, Rich, we've got an interesting story on the regulatory and legislation side of things. Australia has officially proposed token mapping prior to legislating. Now, what is that? We'll get into it in a second. But while you have Australia doing some really incredible things on their side of the globe, you've got Canada completely overstepping in their regulation, not for the first time, but probably for the fifth or sixth time. Am I surprised? Not really. But what is token mapping? Let's break that down first. Richard, are you familiar with the concept or is this something you'd like me to break down? Go for it. So token mapping is basically this idea where instead of just broad sweeping legislating across all coins or categorizing um, in like a generalized way, Australia is proposing taking certain groups of tokens and specifically legislating for certain groups as opposed to um, really generalizing across all of crypto or all of NFTs or all of even like the ecosystem platforms or privacy coins, they're going to be taking a much more finessed approach to legislating for crypto in their country. 
I could not be more bullish on that. I think it's a phenomenal move by their their government. And I really hope to see more countries taking that stance. Will they? Probably not. But that's where Canada comes in. Canada decided to basically tell their people like what cryptocurrencies are okay and which cryptocurrencies they cannot and will not be able to trade. Among the ones that they said that they can trade are Bitcoin Cash and Litecoin. I cannot make this shit up. They straight up gave endorsements behind a couple of coins. Like I think it's a list of like 10 to 12 coins where like they can trade it. And you've got what I kind of today refer to as like the certified shit coins at the top of the list. It's like they didn't even do any research. So Richard, you've got two very diametrically opposed um, approaches to legislation here. What are your thoughts on them? Which one would you prefer to see? Oh, man. Well, you kind of teed this up pretty easily for me. Uh, I'm going to go with Australia for 10000 Uh Australia, as we've covered over like the last couple of years, has been, you know, pretty open to the concept of Web3 and, and crypto. And that's been highly encouraging. And it's cool to see them continue to take steps in that direction. Uh, Canada's been back and forth. They'll like do some stuff that like really makes things... Uh, pretty kosher and, and, and great for Web3. Then other times they're extremely strict. And this is one of those moments. And I just don't understand who gave them the guidance for the cryptos that they said were okay. Uh, I just want to know who was on that panel and uh, question how they came to this conclusion. I mean, without any real evidence, I mean, you could probably say Gary Gensler is, you know, chairing their finance committee. But that's just my take. Um, I can't. I can't say that Gary Gensler's doing anything good for the SEC here in the states. And I figured that if um, Canada's going to make these type of decisions, it probably makes a lot of sense that he's the one calling the shots there too. But that is a conversation for a different day, I guess, because we're not talking about U.S. politics today until now. So our next story in the Web three lightning round comes from Uniswap, who has officially banned 253 wallets for alleged crimes in an effort to abide by the U.S. sanctions. So the U.S., of course, has sanctions out against Russia, Iran, and a couple of countries like North Korea. And I believe that this is directly tied to those sanctions. So if you are you know, operating financially out of any of those countries, they are trying to put a full halt on a couple of different um, avenues of transacting and trying to get around sanctions. So Uniswap is showing that they're willing to comply and abide by those sanctions, which to me, it's more like a Band-Aid, right? It's like they're applying a tourniquet or they're applying pressure because the truth is, is that it, if they're not going to use Uniswap, they're going to use something else, right? There's so many different exchange protocols out there. It seems like this is just um, non-news, but do you take this apart any differently than I do? I, I mean, can they ultimately... I, the way I look at this is truly as a as a Uniswap story. So them as a company, uh, you know, there's all kinds of actions and, and things that are requested. For example, in the States, uh, sometimes they go to Facebook and ask, hey, can you give me data that's in this thing for a case? And they're like, no, because of rights, et cetera. Or Uniswap is like, hey, so we have this sanction. We're not trying to really do business with them. Can you stop doing these transactions? They could have said, no, go kick rocks. But Uniswap also doesn't want to piss off the U.S. government and then like have this be a whole thing. So they took the executive position of like, yeah, here you go. We'll, we'll cut these off. Them knowing that 
this doesn't stop the issue. Like you said, it's a Band-Aid. So like, it doesn't hurt them to be like, yeah, sure, here you go. We'll turn these off. Uh, I don't know why they wouldn't just, yep, here you go. Yeah, look, I think that of all of the different countries that could take this type of stance, banning wallets for alleged crimes, I'm okay with it happening in this situation, but like, typically I'm a pretty decentralized, decentralized, I'm a, uh, I am a decentralization purist is what I'm trying to say without, you know, having any amount of vocabulary skills today. Um, and I don't like the fact that you've got decent, what is supposed to be a decentralized protocol really fully complying with authority, right? It's supposed to be a trustless system, yada, yada, yada. But to me, again, I also want things to be AML compliant. I want them to comply with governments that are positive governments, but you can't have both sides to that same coin, right? So it's, it's definitely a tricky position, but let's go ahead and move this thing forward. I want to get into a couple of the bigger stories that we have today. Our next story comes from the FDIC, otherwise known as the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. You've probably heard of the FDIC when you are, of course, transacting a traditional bank or if you're looking for a custody platform where you can trade like a Coinbase, a Kraken, an FTX. Well, the FDIC just issued formal warnings to five different crypto companies for making misleading statements about their FDIC deposit insurance. Among them was FTX. Richard, there's a lot that the public is led to believe about FDIC in terms of like what it really means for them in terms of protecting their investments. How do you think that this is going to ultimately impact broader crypto? Because it seems to me that a lot of people are putting a lot of faith in traditional investment um, institutions when in reality, they're probably better off simply custodying their own assets and just assume, assuming and accepting the risk that, that, that comes with that. That's correct. And what a lot of these big exchanges are doing are trying to have their cake and eat it too, right? So we, we ran into these problems that, you know, we've reported on multiple times uh, between like Voyager, Celsius, et cetera, who are custodying these cryptos. Uh, and then if they go bankrupt, they're keeping your cryptos, even though that's your money. So a lot of the language that is in some of these uh, sexes, uh, centralized exchanges, CEXs, um, they have gone and put in, I don't want to say misleading, but like if you weren't like looking at this with a fine, 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 like tooth comb, like combing through this stuff, you would think that the money that you put in there, uh, US dollar wise, so whether that is uh, actual fiat money or a stable coin, and the way that they usually dress this up is like if you have like $250,000 worth, uh, worth of investment, that's how they say it. $250,000 worth of investment, you know, is FDIC insured. Well, that's not the case. If you have $250,000 USD, like dollars, hard cash sitting in your account, yes, that if, if, if they have FDIC, that is insured. Where people mess up is if they think, oh, I have $100,000 of Bitcoin, I have $50,000 of Ethereum and $20,000 of Litecoin, all that kind of stuff. And if they go belly up, that's not insured. It's gone. Like, it, you're, you're grass. <laughs> you're not getting that back. And so they want them to be a lot more clear about that because a lot of newer users to the crypto space have no idea. So again, if you're going to be the custodian and say that you are FDIC insured, but you're truly not protecting uh, your end user, if things hit the fan, then you're misleading them. And that's why they're issuing these formal warnings because that is exactly what's happening. 
See, I agree with the fact that they need to be issuing these warnings. But to me, I think that the consumer needs a lot more upfront knowledge and true like financial literacy around what exactly an FDIC um, compliant business looks like, right? Because in this case, like there are so many different businesses out there that claim FDIC compliance, but in reality, they are actually not. And I don't know if I go down the street that I can find three people out of a sample size of 20 that actually will be able to tell me what that is and what it means for them if they're actually investing capital. So again, is it a bigger story right now? Not necessarily. These are just warnings. But I do think that in the future, the better way um, for anybody to invest in cryptocurrencies is to really onboard themselves in a decentralized fashion. But we will detail that a little bit more for you on another show. Here is probably the biggest story that is going to fly under the radar for the past week. And that is ETH 2.0 and its big decentralization issue. Richard, have you heard about this at all or do you need me to break it down for you? Break it down. Okay. So I didn't know this at least prior to last week, or at least I didn't think about it. But what a lot of people are starting to quickly come to the realization of as we approach the September 15th merge over to ETH 2.0 and proof of stake is that all of those miners that formerly secured the network, once they go away, the stakers or the validators and the node operators that are left over that control a massive portion of the ETH ecosystem in terms of like, you know, how much Ether they hold, because those are going to be the places that stake to secure the network. They are massive by comparison to everybody else, right? So you have platforms like Coinbase and Binance and other massive exchanges globally like KuCoin and Wobi and then you also have other like institutional players now, right? Those, like all of those institutions having a massive amount of Ethereum gives them the power over the network to basically pick and choose, you know, how to validate and or all, like voting power to secure the overall network. It is ridiculously funny to me. Because everybody keeps going on and on about how proof of stake is going to be so much better. But the truth is, is if the network is not decentralized, I'm pretty sure that you actually have a much greater case that Ethereum is a security. How do you see it? Because again, this is a, a rapidly developing story. A lot of it is theoretical at this point. Do you feel that like we're headed for a, a less decentralized Ethereum? Or should we actually be giving credit to like ETH proof of work? Um, what's your what's your read on it? My hot take on this is you first have to look at these other companies that are doing staking outside of ETH. Yes, your validators that come up first and, and put all this out, they have a lot of power. But for most people, they don't have 32 ETH to go and spin up a node and, and become a validator. But if now I can start to put some of my ETH towards a validator and like me and a group of 100 other, uh, 32 other people all put up one ETH and now we're a validator, I think a ton of those get spun up. And so I think with scale, with mass, that's not going to be as much of an issue. I think initially, as soon as the switch gets turned on, 
Absolutely. And until there's infrastructure put in place where people can easily go and start staking their ETH in a easy way that anybody can come in and do it, sure. But I think eventually it's going to become commoditized to where anyone who owns ETH, here, press this button, put it here, now you can stake your ETH. And I, I just don't see it as being a long-term issue. Look, I sincerely hope that you're right. Because I really would like to believe that Ethereum is going to stay and remain a decentralized network. Um, but a lot of the stats are pointing otherwise for right now. Um, we could very well start to see the breakup of that into the near future as more institutions start to play in. Because as they play in, they're going to need to be onboarded through certain existing platforms. So they'll probably go to a OTC service run by Binance or an OTC service run by Coinbase. So we'll have to see how that all pans out. But for right now, that's a pretty interesting issue that's developing in the background. The other one that I thought was pretty funny the other day was a leak from an ETH dev call. Um, and this was not something I wanted to talk on today, but we're going to bring it up anyway because I think it's really funny. Um, they're saying that the fee structure for like how people are going to be charged gas fees going forward is not going to be immediately impacted by the merge at all. Like not even a little bit. And to me, that's extremely funny. Um, did you, were you expecting any type of like improvement to gas fees, at least in the short term here? Or are you? 100%. Like we're going from uh, what? Uh, best case scenario, somewhere between like 15 to 100 transactions per second up to 100,000. Yeah, I mean, the initial was like, why wouldn't it be cheaper? But they're like, actually, it's going to have no cause. And we're like, how? Houseway, tell me. Like, it's, it's, it's frustrating is what it is. But I hope they figure it out. But I have been enjoying, you know, let's call it 5 to $20 gas as opposed to the 50 to 200 gas that was Dude, a over the weekend, Gwei hit one. One. Like, that's just insane to me. But anyway, let's go ahead and carry this thing forward. Let's finish out the Web3 lightning round with something ridiculous. So um, in the world of Web3 and cryptocurrencies, if you've been on YouTube at all, you've probably stumbled across one, two, or three of the biggest YouTube influencers. And as of right now in the crypto space, the biggest influencers are um, the folks over at Coin Bureau, based out of the UK. You've got the twins over at Allcoin Daily. And of course, you have none other than BitBoy Crypto. Now, BitBoy has been on our show in the past. Um, we were happy to host him. And we've been um, bystanders to watching his growth since. Apparently, last week, he formally filed a defamation suit against another YouTube influencer. The problem is, at least from my perspective, is this guy has 1.5 million subs on YouTube. And the guy he's suing has like less than 100,000 from what I'm told. And I think that it just comes down to the armor is wearing for him and he's not doing well with like other people being critical of how he runs his show and how he approaches the crypto community. Now, there's a lot of other folks out there that have been hypercritical of him. And I'm not trying to take one side or the other right now, but the fact that this is specifically alleging that these claims or the things that this specific other YouTube influencer said had a financial impact on this man's life and also caused, caused him emotional harm and like um, duress in that way feels 
it it feels disingenuous and it feels like he's just trying to retaliate for some petty bullshit online. That's as far as I want to take it, but I'm curious if you have a read on it because I think it sets a really dangerous precedent for influencers. You know, coming from an unbiased middle ground place in this very moment of talking through this, this past weekend, I watched a documentary that uh, Netflix has on Meta Teo. Um, really interesting. If you have some time, check it out. What I found interesting, how this all came to pass, how, you know, uh, for those who don't know, uh, basically he had, uh, he got catfished and uh, it got brought to light by this very small, um, like sports analysis uh, company at the time that basically just figured out that a lot of these high profile companies didn't do proper due diligence on if his girlfriend actually existed. So they were really trying to go after and bring that to the light. But instead, what got brought to the light got all back shifted to Matt Tateo. So it had um, an unintended end effect, but did they have the right to go and pull up all of these actual facts and then present them? And then they blew up because of it. But my, my point being is that, yes, even though this guy has only 100,000 followers, if he had 10,000 followers, but did a ton of research and brought a ton of facts that point to things that he did that might be illegal, it's still relevant and it still holds weight. So that's, that's really the point I'm going at. It's like, look, uh, however you want to sue, however you want to do this, if someone's going to come at you and they are able to present a very compelling case with a ton of facts that like, you know, how many of the stuff can be coincidences? We've alluded to that on last week's Aftershock. I'm not going to get into that again, but anyone at any time with any type of amount of following can come and present a very compelling case. Yep. And I think that's exactly where I want to leave it. And let's move into uh, the metaverse because the real world is um, just a barrel of laughs this week, right? So last week in the metaverse, we had a couple of big stories that we want to make sure on your radar. And the first of which is a very interesting development over with Yuga Labs. Now, as you may or may not know, Yuga Labs acquired both CryptoPunks and MeBits earlier on last year. And basically since that acquisition, apes actually flip punks and they've been operating at a much higher price floor than the CryptoPunks. But last week we saw... Punks flip apes during the same week that Yuga announced the licensing agreements for both MeBits and Punks. Now, do I think this is tied or at all related? Absolutely not. But I do think that the coincidence of it is pretty funny and it's an interesting just like happenstance. Richard, I think you spoke to it earlier on in the show where like, you know, certain options got called and that was how, you know, part of the market downturn occurred. But what people don't recognize is that that can happen in NFTs as well. So in the Board Ape community, there are a couple of people that have been leveraging a number of their apes and trying to basically use them to cross-collateralize loans. And in doing so, a couple of those loans are now being called and like they're going to be you know, auctioning off those apes because the people who you know, took out loans against them no longer can actually cover you know, what they had taken away. So... It's a really tricky circumstance that's causing a massive sell-off in the board ape community right now. It's just kind of a natural progression. Uh, but this can happen both across normal coins and NFTs. It's pretty interesting stuff. 
But I do think that people should look a little bit more into the license agreements for punks and mebits. It's really interesting stuff there. As for what I personally think is probably the highlight of last week, you had ENS domains officially reaching um, the 2 million name registration mark. Absolutely insane that they've hit that mark because it was only last year that actually may have been earlier this year that they were at 1 million names registered. So all of their registrations have doubled across the last four months to reach this threshold. And it's just going to keep going from here. As far as identity is concerned in Web3, I personally think ENS is probably the leader in terms of helping people truly um, make a name for themselves online and really identifying with their wallet address. Of course, PFPs have a place in that too. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. But what do you think about this? Is this just the start for ENS? Yes. I mean, as we look across what is going to be the next home front for domain registration, ENS is leading the charge. Not even close. And 2 million is going to look like a laughable number in the next few years. Yeah, the velocity that they've gone you know, forward across the last four months is really something else. And I, I want to believe that we're going to like quickly, you know, run up to five. But I think that you'll probably have a much clearer case for mass adoption, you know, towards the end of this year and the beginning of next. And we're going to start to see exactly what the registration velocity looks like when we're up and over the three or five million name registration mark. I'm excited about it. I think there's a lot of potential with ENS. And the toolkit is just getting started. You've got a lot more people that are developed. So it's all pretty, pretty exciting stuff. But let's move into our next story. This one's weird. So have you heard of Pseudoswap, Rich? Nope. Okay, so Pseudoswap is and has been known as a exchange platform that allowed people to swap NFTs for a while. But they also had um, specific pools for trading cryptocurrencies like a Uniswap. Well, they just decided to launch their NFT exchange the other week. And within that, it just came out that they accidentally sidestepped creator royalties. Now, I say accidentally with very much so air quotes around it because it's really hard to dodge that on accident. It's a very specific set of code that you have to put in there to honor creator, creator royalties where they're paying back a certain percentage to the person who originated the work. Um, but that is actually something that Pseudoswap omitted. Now, it's since sparked a much bigger debate as to whether or not we should be actively you know, honoring creator royalties or if that falls to the creator to actually uphold it. Where do you sit on the debate? It's in the contract and it's on the create. Like, so if you are going to do traditional licensing and if you're going to do like traditional like royalties for music or whatever it is, uh, it's on you to get all that done, right? So like, for example, if, if a movie is trying to use your music and they use it and you didn't pay attention and like didn't do anything and didn't go do some lawsuit later to get it all rectified, that's on you. Uh, so where I kind of sit on it is, yeah, sh should the exchanges have a, I guess, moral code to make sure that they are paying out their people what they are potentially owed? Absolutely. Is it on them to get it figured out and make sure that, that that's happening? I technically don't think that's the case. I think it's on the company that did it and making sure that if their contracts are in place and they have all that 
how it needs to be, they should be putting something in place to track all of that stuff. Going to give a quick plug to Gilded. Gilded actually has a process. Uh, Gilded Finance, whoever wants to go and look at that, they actually have a way that you can track every single royalty that you should be getting paid on. Um, it's a really cool process. Go check that out if you're interested in it. But again, going back to who does this fall on? Falls on the NFT project, in my opinion. Where do you stand? Um, I got to tell you, I think that it's going to make for a better decentralized future if the if all exchanges are actually complying. I know that in principle, you're right. Um, you know, just based on the way that typical licensing agreements work. But even more so, am I happy that you brought up Gilded? Because frankly, like solutions like theirs are going to be the ones that make our space better, right? We want for people yeah. to, you know, honor contracts and treat them as legal agreements. That includes smart contracts. So my hope is, is that more, more marketplaces continue to abide by, you know, what is written into the specific co smart contract. Um, but at the same time, I hope that more exchanges like X2Y2 come about where you have, you know, reasonable fees in general, because that was another debate that got spurned um, in the middle of all this, because you have OpenSea charging 2.5% on every transaction right now versus X2Y2 who is right now the leading competitor, who's charging 0.5%. And that's not going to change. So it's interesting to me to see how that narrative is shaping up. But let's go ahead and forge forward to an easy story and then our final story in the metaverse this week. So this next story comes from Super Rare. Super Rare is the leader by far and away when it comes to one-of-one -one art in the NFT space. They've just announced that after a very, very long wait, you are now going to be able to use their rare token when purchasing um, different artworks on Super Rare. Now, this is a really big deal because up until this point, Rare has only been used as a governance token. So to me, it's interesting that you're finally presenting to their community this additional layer of utility and taking a note out of the book of ApeCoin. So Richard, do you think this is the right move? Will every platform eventually have their own token used both for selling and for governance? Or is this just the latest example of somebody blatantly ripping off ApeCoin? Uh, they've been working on this and I think they're, I wouldn't say that they're ripping on this. I think they, they were just too slow to administer this. I don't know that every exchange needs to go and create their own native token to be able to purchase on it. Yes, is there a utility for it? Sure, yes. Could they do it in their own ecosystem? For example, if OpenSea came out with C token and now you only had, you only could buy and sell uh, the NFTs using like C token, I think you get a lot of friction. I think you get a lot of people who are not going to be very excited and, and, and happy about that. Um, but you're still going to have a good portion that does like that would that would be something that would then send people to other more and more outside platforms by creating that that friction. So I don't know that it's going to be every single NFC platform comes up with their own native token. I don't think that they're necessary because where they make their money, where they make their real money is through all these transaction fees. Right. But if they're trying to like double down and be like, oh, we can make transaction fees. And if people are buying and selling on our own token and that goes up and down or whatever. Now you're having to deal with something else. OpenSea doesn't want to be uh, a place where they're having to, you know, custody and, and deal with money and all this other kind of stuff. They're basically saying like, look, we are an interface. When you make an exchange and put this stuff up there, we collect a fee and that's all we want. And it's a lot easier. It's a way from a compliance standpoint, security standpoint, all this other kind of stuff. 
way less stuff that they can be blamed for. As soon as you start throwing in a token, that's where people are going to get messed up legally, in my opinion. Look, there's definitely some liability to it, but I do think that these are all experiments and we need to be honoring experiments. We need to continue to try and push things forward. So I hope to see more you know, positive moves from the super rare community and the super rare token. But I do think this is going to probably put them into a little bit more of a complicated situation as it relates to um, regulation, right? I think this. I think the SEC now has um, what looks like a very concrete case against them as being a security that's unregistered. But we'll have to see. Um, there's a lot that needs to be determined in that in that world. But let's go ahead and charge into our next story. In fact, before we do, I just need to make sure that I share this real quick because you're going to get a laugh out of this one. Um, it just got like, just came across the wire, but apparently, um, at their game this past week or like the training facility for the Arizona Cardinals, Cliff Kingsbury showed up rocking the friends merch. (laughs) Love that. I don't know how to feel about it (laughs) because like I am an, I'm an Arizona Cardinals fan through and through. And the fact that you've got the coach pulling up in childlike drawings leads me to believe that he's been like overseeing Kyler Murray's homework. Sorry, that was a great joke teed up for every sports fan of this show because that was one of the funniest freaking narratives of the entire offseason. Anyway, how how would we get back to metaverse-related stuff, right? Um, This probably is one of the most important stories of the last week. Um, Punk6529, prominent influencer in the metaverse and NFT community, has made a massive announcement in partnership with the University of Nicosia, who's one of the foremost leaders in cryptocurrency education online, that they're officially going to be teaching an introduction to NFTs and the metaverse through the university online starting in just under 50 days. Richard, did you get a chance to review this at all before we went into this? Because this is this it's is intense. crazy. Yeah, the the people that are on this website to like who are going to be the coaches and all the other kind of stuff and who you're going to be getting information from. It's it's a lot. Uh, it's a it. I mean, I'm impressed. I'm really impressed by what they've been able to put together. Yeah, we're talking about like the very top of each vertical within the metaverse right now. So. This entire course, totally free to register for, by the way, that's probably the biggest like keynote of it all is that he's put this together with all of these massive names, these big time experts and thought leaders completely for free. And it's completely open. You can go mint a pass. It will get you into the course for free, attend for free, do all the homework assignments and everything else, you know, at your leisure. And they're not asking a damn thing from you. Like, that's just, it, it's really, really mind-blowing to me. I love it um, personally, but I think that if you look down the list, there are a lot of really remarkable names on here. So, like, they're going to have a generative art um, masterclass within this that is going to feature Art on Blockchain, which is Snowfro from Artblocks, Tyler Hobbs, who's the artist behind Fidenza, Dimitri Cherniak, who's the artist behind Ringers, and uh, Matt Delory. I think it's Des Lauriers or Delaurier, um, who is the artist behind both Meridians and I believe it's Subscapes. So just immediately there with one class, you've got legends. 
You've got other courses in one of one art featuring people like Beeple and Drifter and Claire Silver. In the world of PFPs, you're going to get Punk 4156, who's from um, notably behind um, the Nouns Project. It's just like the list literally just keeps going on and on. Kevin Rose, Chris Dixon. I, like, I can't process this quick enough. Like, do you think that we're going to see anything else like this going forward? Or is this just like going to be one of the pinnacle pieces of education out there? Will there be others? There'll be others that try. Uh, do I think this is a really awesome tool that like I can't really comprehend why it's free? Uh, that. And therefore, you're getting really good information really early on this. And if you're really trying to learn about the metaverse, NFTs, et cetera, yo, go check this out. It's it's free. Totally free. And again, it doesn't just like work on the builder side of things. Like you've got influencers from the collector community that are going to be involved in this as well, teaching about like what they look for when they're curating their own collections. Um, it's wild. I'm really excited about that. But um, man, <laughs> I hope a ton of people take this opportunity. Do you think that this is something that a lot of people will take up or do you think that it's going to go unnoticed or unappreciated? I think what's going to be, will people take advantage and like sign up and get it? Probably. Will they actually go through all the courses? Probably not. And that's just the way it goes, no matter like what's going on, unfortunately. But for those who do go through it and come out on the other side of it, I think they're going to be positioned to have a lot of success in the space. I just hope that they keep it as open coursework. Um, that's probably my biggest takeaway from it because you can have it be this m much bigger effort and then try to monetize the back end of it after you've theoretically done the public good. And I just hope that's not the case, <laughs> right? Because I think that the more people that get exposure to this, the better we're going to make the NFT community and the better we're going to make the metaverse. But that, I believe, will wrap up last week in the metaverse and now will give us the opportunity to go into our final segment where we get to share a little bit about what is going on by way of NFT alpha. I'm really excited for this, Rich, because we used to do a coin calls section that we called blockchain bets and we've since retired it, but this is now our opportunity to bring a little bit more alpha back into the lives of our listeners so that Basically, at home, you can get a little bit more ahead of the curve in doing your research about certain projects. It's one thing to be connected to the news. It's another entirely to be ahead of the curve when it comes to trends. So, Richard, I know that you're very familiar, you know, just recently with this project. But would you like to introduce um, the project that we're going to be talking about this week? Happy to. So this week, we're going to be deep diving into ENS Maxis. So. Um, ENS Maxis, the first 10,000 PFP collection purpose-built for the ENS community. Now, this dropped uh, it was as a free mint uh, meta, but it has no royalties, aka they are not making money every time that you go and sell this again on the, on the free market. So truly, they made this free and they're letting the community gain all the benefit on the secondary market. Yeah, this is actually something that not like is tremendously rare. Okay, we've not really seen a lot of uh, different collections come out with no royalties policy, but the free mint meta is something that's been there for quite a while. So getting the chance to see a collection come forward to kind of defy the typical revenue model for a free mint project is really interesting. But as I personally listened to the 
um, founders and the team behind this project across the last you know 10 days, I've come to learn that it's very, very clear that when we say it's purpose built for the ENS community, we mean that it is very much so purpose built for the ENS community. They're not trying to make money on it. They're doing this to onboard more people into ENS. That is their end game. That is their play because ultimately they want more people to take on the ideas behind Web3 identity. It's really interesting, Rich, because like, again, there's no, there's no model for it. They may announce something down the line that's a further utility that can generate you know, revenue for them, but that in and of itself as well will be novel. Um, I personally am really excited about this certain feature in the collection, and that's that the artwork is all dynamic and that the characters continue to have these evolutions. So the, tr- the team across the last week has been actively updating the metadata and adding new traits into the mix. So like, for example, across the last week, we saw new traits get added in like goatees. You had different eye traits. You had um, the aliens gaining this um, dino fin. Just insane stuff. And then finally, we got the numbers guys, which all added brand new, like one of one traits to each and every single one of them. It's Kind of crazy to think that after, you know, you get past reveal, additional traits can be added, but there's more to it here, I think. And I think that a lot of people have speculated on where this actually leads because some people want like the look or the aesthetic back that they had prior to a trait reveal. So many people are starting to speculate that like you're going to have variable identity here, right? The idea that you can go back and forth and toggle certain traits that you may have prior had and customize your ENS Maxi to a degree. In principle, I love the idea, and I think it really is pushing things forward. Now, can you get into a little bit about, you know, what's the deal behind the team? Um, What's the story there? So the team is currently anonymous, uh, but speculators attribute the collection to the ENS leadership. So um, a lot lot of... uh, We've seen some pretty good success come from uh, initial anonymous teams that later reveal themselves. Uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, the Illuminati NFT. Shout out to them. Um, but what we... I, I am hopeful that eventually the team does come out of their anonymity. Like, I have no problem with the initial, like, drop of it being anonymous, but as it scales and gets bigger and it's getting, you know, a a decent size, I don't think they can stay that way forever. What I will say is like one of the things that I typically look for when I'm vetting an NFT project is I like when teams are doxxed. In this specific instance, I think a lot of people were skeptical. A lot of people were looking at this from the perspective of, okay, we're minting for free. We're minting a project that will be not taking in any revenue from royalties, and we have no idea who's behind it. It brings into the question trust, right? How much can you trust a team that wants to have you mint directly to your wallet where you technically can't read if you're, you know, uneducated in taking apart a smart contract? You can't tell whether or not they're trying to do a set approval for all where they can just drain your wallet. In this case, they released. And this was like the big differentiating factor. Prior to Mint, they released their contract for review by the community. 
So you had the opportunity to go in and truly vet whether or not the contract was malicious. That is a massive differentiating factor. And frankly, I think it's something that we need to be building into our community standards going forward, whether you're minting a PFP project or you're minting something like generative art. Every contract should be out there for the public to see. But the speculation element now behind this project is really interesting because they have said on Twitter spaces that we are staying anonymous for the moment because if people knew who we were, it would balloon too quickly. And I think that's a massive testament to the fact that they want the community to determine the value of this project before they ever come out and dox. So interesting stuff there. I'm personally very bullish on that fact. But let's jump into the very final details here. Another really big one. Love this. And I know a lot of people that also love this, like Richard. No Discord. This is going to start to become a very quick trend here within the NFT community because a lot of people are getting really sick and tired of Discord. Too many channels, too many notifications, too much bullshit to comb through. Um, this community specifically is building itself around Twitter spaces, which I'm bullish on. The last piece that I want to give you guys in terms of why you need to keep your eye on this project, it's been out for a little while. The price is still very, very accessible. Um, at the time of this recording, I believe the floor price is right around 0 0.03 still. So roughly about 50 to 70 bucks. And they have a lot of very big activations on the way. They teased a big scavenger hunt with massive rewards over the weekend. And they're also right now planning additional trait updates and teasing other um, future developments on top of it. So our alpha watch this week is for ENS Maxis. We hope that you will go and show them some love on Twitter and consider doing some more research behind the project before you go ahead and degen in. But that's going to wrap up things for us this week at CryptoCurrent. Um, Richard, you of course had an interview come out on Monday. Who did you get the chance to sit down with this week? Yeah, so this week I uh, had a really good conversation with Aria Navarro from VSA Partners. Uh, we talked about breakthrough Web3 brands and how you can be building a very strong brand in Web3 as you build out your company and, and how it's very important to keep brand at the forefront of your business. And as you bring your products and your everything out to your community and to the, the, the general world. So it was a really good conversation. A lot of good and great reminders that I think a lot of founders in the space forget. So it's a, it was a really great, great refresher and um, awesome things for even me uh, and what we're doing at CryptoCurrent, some things that we can be improving on and et cetera. Awesome. Well, look, for those of you at home that are, again, just coming to us for the very first time, please make sure that you are subscribed to the show over on YouTube or following wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We put these shows out every Monday and Wednesday, and we're actively adding more content over on crypto-current.co. Upcoming in October of this year, we're also holding our very first day conference in Austin, Texas. We're calling it AGME, or otherwise Austin is going to make it. And that is going to be October 28th in downtown Austin at Speakeasy. So you can get your tickets for that right now. If you're looking to sponsor, we are looking for a couple more partners to come on board. Um, we would love to have you and partner with you on getting more exposure for your brands. But that is going to wrap up this week's Aftershock. We really do appreciate you being here every single week, checking out what's going on to make sure that you are connected to the world of Web3 and the thought leaders who are shaping it. I've been Stephen Miller. You can follow me at Steve Miller underscore PHX. He's been Richard Carthon. You can follow him at Richard Carthon. And until next time, friends, we hope that you have a great week. 
stay cryptocurrent. Catch you next time. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cryptocurrent. Cryptocurrent is a cryptocurrency and blockchain education platform that's bridging the gap between the curious newcomers who are just discovering the space and the thought leaders who are shaping its future. All opinions expressed by Richard Carthon, the Cryptocurrent team, and their guests on this show are exclusively their own opinions. This show and any other Cryptocurrent production is exclusively for informational purposes. 